Well, let's start with a word of prayer, and then Daco is going to come and minister to us. Father, thank you for our time today. Thank you for uh, the, the preciousness of gathering in your house, Lord, as we uh, come here. We have this building, this facility, and we're grateful for it and the comforts of it. Uh, but, Lord, we know that wherever we gather, uh, there your presence is with us in a very special, unifying way. And so, Lord, I, I pray that our hearts would be supple to the work of the Holy Spirit, that we'd be yielded to and excited about what your Spirit has for us today as Dr. Ola opens the Word of God. Uh, be with him. Empower him. Uh, I pray that you would guide his mind and his tongue and, Lord, that what we hear today is, Thus saith the Lord. And, Lord, I thank you for what you'll do through us and in us because of today. In Jesus' name, amen. Good morning. Uh, you might wonder why I have my walker up here and things about almost two weeks ago now, walking across an airport. My wife has AFib, so we had a wheelchair ordered for her, and I said, I'm fine. All of a sudden, my back locked up. I end up doing the nursing home shuffle, getting to baggage, and I'm still trying to figure out what's going on. So I, I brought, I told my wife I'm going to take the walker. It was a men's retreat. I told her she didn't pass the physical, so I'd have to go uh, myself there. But uh, what a blessing we had uh, to, to be. And then I was so thrilled to be able to finally get to preach here at a church that we have heard about. And now with, with the uh, studs here, that's uh, an added blessing staying in their home. But I'm so glad. Let's turn to Philippians 4. And my premise question is, where is your confidence? And I'd just like us to work through this verse. It'll be... Uh, good, and I ask your participation when, if I ask a question, I know many of you probably are very thorough in the word, and I believe it'll be a good time of growing and, and fellowshipping for us during this time. Philippians chapter 4, let's say verse 13 together. I can do all things through Christ which strengtheneth me. The context of this, Paul was in prison writing a letter of rejoicing, emphasizing the joy of the Lord. And then he said in verse 10, But I rejoice in the Lord greatly that now at the last your care of me hath flourished again. Wherein ye were also careful, but ye lacked opportunity. As you know, when Paul had the Macedonian call, was called to Philippi, met women because Philippi, a Roman colony, did not have a synagogue, you needed to have 10 men. The women met at the river. Those who were God-fears, uh, those who had not yet come to a, a full knowledge of Christ and salvation. And one of those ladies saved was Lydia. Her house became an operating base for missions. That also became one of the few supporting opportunities that Paul had during his whole ministry. And he was making mention, there was a period of time you could not be giving, but now you have uh, done that again. He said, not that I speak in respect of want, for I have learned, underscore that in your mind, I have learned in whatever state I am therewith to be content. So we learn contentment is a learned behavior. 
We are not born content. We come out kicking and screaming. And some spend their whole life doing that. But he said, I know how to be abased. I know how to abound everywhere. And in all things I am instructed both to be full, hungry, both to abound and to suffer need. Paul said, I knew, I, I believe Paul came out of a very wealthy background. I think a lot of things in scripture would indicate that. But he left all of that. So he said, I, I know what it is to have everything. I also know what it is to have nothing. And then he says, for I can do all things through Christ, which strengthened me. So I want to take this first phrase of that verse, I can do, that's the fact of our confidence. That's a statement of confidence. Paul says, I know what I can do. Now, was Paul bragging, say, hey, what, whatever I set my mind to do, bless God, I can do it. I remember years ago, uh, we were given weekend passes for a NBA All-Star Weekend. And we knew the guy who was the head of the Charlotte Coliseum there and the head of security. So he got us weekend passes. I was preaching at a church in Charlotte. I did Sunday school morning service. In the afternoon, we went to the All-Star game and then back to preach that night. But all day Saturday was the, uh, all the activity, the slam-a-dunk contest and all of the, the things that went on. And there was an old-timers All-Star game. So my son Stephen and I went in uh, our tickets were way up in the balcony part, but we went right down by the court. And so I talked to an usher. I said, oh, what about if we take a seat here? He said, well, they're all taken. And so you'll have to go where your seats are. And he said, well, sit there, but when somebody comes, you have to leave. Well, nobody came, so we took those seats. And just ahead of us was Evander Holyfield at that time, the heavyweight champ of the world. And uh, I said, Stephen, go have Evander sign your program. And so he and I said, Mr. Holyfield, would you sign me? He said, yeah, I'd be glad to. And, and uh, he had his little entourage there, and he signed it. And Stephen came back and said, look what he put. Evander Holyfield, Philippians 4.13. Oh, wow. At that time, professing, he was professing believer with a testimony as we understood. And I said, well, praise the Lord. I can knock somebody cool in Jesus' name. <laughs> Wait till I get on I-94 in Detroit. Come on, pal. You want a piece of me? I can do it. Hold up Philippians 4.13. Boy, we can get her done. That's not what this is talking about. What was he saying? What God tells me to do, I can do because he will do the enabling of what he called me to do. And when this is not a braggadocious statement, when God called Moses, how did Moses answer? I can't. And God answered, I am. You cannot say I can to the I am who says you can. And that's a great lesson to learn because you have to learn to walk in the ways. So some say, well, yeah, pastor could. And obviously those who have theological training can or, or someone with gift, uh, gifting can. Uh, so Paul, to help us understand anyone God chooses to use can be used. It doesn't matter if it's upper class, lower class, uh, gifted, not appearing to be gifted. So in 1 Corinthians 1, we're not going to turn there, but I'm just going to give a listing that Paul gives as an encouragement. Who can? 
What did Paul say in Philippians chapter 1? Any of you, I mean, uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, do you remember what he, what he said? God has chosen through the foolishness of preaching. He has chosen the preaching, but he said, not many wise, didn't say not any, not many that are high in this world, didn't say not any, but not many. But God has chosen what? The foolish thing. So number one, God says, if you appear to be a fool to this world, and you know who's considered a fool today? Those who hold up this standard is absolute. You're fools. Watch the evening. I don't watch the evening news anymore. I told Stutz it'd make him mad enough to mug an Avon lady, so we, we don't watch it anymore. <laughs> and, uh, that, and you have to be really wound up uh, to do that. And, and so we get intimidated as believers. We hesitate to give the gospel because, well, I don't want to be perceived as, as a fool. But God says, I have chosen the foolish things. Why? To confound the wise. The weak things. To confound the strong. You say, I, I am nothing. I, I, I'm a nobody. God says, that's, that's what I like. That's how I can use. Well, let's suppose that we had a plan. We're, we're going to impact this city. We're going to impact the state. We're going to impact the nation to eventually impact the world. Let's form a leadership team. So what do we do? Oh, say, I know so-and-so is the quarterback of the uh, college football team. And I know so-and-so is a, a president of this group and so on. And so we start picking. Where did Jesus go when he picked his leadership team? Galilee, fishermen. On the way there, picks up an IRS agent. What are you thinking? Good grief. But you know what he said? The weak things. Nobody was considered more despised or weak than those from Galilee. To do what? Confound the strong. People who think they have it all. I can pull it off. I can do it. The base things to confound the classy. Those who seem to have nothing seem to be able to do nothing. I remember we had a married student at Northland and uh, he got saved later in life. In fact, he reminded me back, way back down in New Mexico was it uh, where where all the spaceships are kept, the, uh, where all the flying saucers are, are stationed. <laughs> you know, we, were, we did a meeting down. He said, it got saved in that meeting. He reminded me. But he came as a married student, older, wife and children. And he was getting ready to graduate uh, that year. He said, Doc O, uh, I believe God has called us to South America to be missionaries. And... Uh, and he said, would you meet and pray with me? Well, Dr. McLaughlin, who was on our staff at that time, as we roll ahead, he came with a letter from a mission board that this individual applied to for his family to go under that mission board. And Dr. Mack puts the letter on my desk and said, read that. And it was a letter from the head of that mission board that's saying, you're teaching uh, servant leadership is making a bunch of wimps 
in Christianity. The guy we interviewed basically was a wimp. I looked at the name. I said, Dr. Mack, write the guy back. Tell him not to worry about that wimp. Because you know what that wimp did? He came and said, Doc O, I believe God's calling us to South America. Would you pray with me? 5.30 in the morning, he and I on our knees in one of the classrooms. You know what that wimp was doing? Weeping. You know what he was doing? Transferring confidence. I said, that wimp is going to be okay. But he won't be okay going with that bunch. God doesn't need strutters. God needs those who are just non-classy, weak, incapable many times. And that family went to South America and has done a tremendous job. And a couple summers ago, I get a call from that wimp. He said, we're in Iron Mountain, Michigan. We'd like to meet you and Charlene for lunch. And so we took that wimp out to lunch with his wife. <laughs> Boy, we had the sweet fellowship to hear of the Bible Institute, to hear of the churches planted, to hear. And you know what? That wimp was okay. Because I can do. And when God puts the touch on that, and the despised things, he said, to confound the noble. Isn't it interesting who preached Pentecost and 3,000 saved? It was a fisherman who was a failure, empowered by the Holy Spirit of God. And the nothings, those who are completely overlooked. Here's the Apostle Paul. Probably they figured probably had the equivalent of what would be two earned doctorates. He's on Mars Hill. What are they calling him on Mars Hill? Seed picker. You remember, who is this? Who is this seed picker? That's like a bird going around picking up scraps. And if, if it got into a logic discussion, Paul could have twisted them into a pretzel with these airheads. But you know what he did? He proclaimed Christ. Some believed. Because... This one who was considered a zero. And Paul says, you know, I delight in that. When you read Philippians chapter 3. I can do. So yes, you can do. I remember when I wrestled about ministry, I, I had made a profession when I was younger. And raised in way in the very, very tip of northern Michigan. And I had always intended to stay in the logging business. And... and uh, when I got my salvation settled, I, I went forward one morning. I left this chair, my chair, which is about a third of the way back in that auditorium. I stood in front of the communion table. I said, God, I don't know what I have, but what I have is yours. Couldn't speak, tongue-tied lisp, terrible lisp. I did not surrender to preach. I surrendered to be available. Could you imagine me coming doing a prophecy conference? <laughs> yes, sir, folks. I mean, it literally crippled me. And uh, I was supposed to have a part in our senior class play in high school. I said, if I have to do it, I will not graduate. And I was serious. I wasn't pulling their leg. I said, I cannot. I, will you work stage? I said, yeah, I'll work stage. But there is no way. One of the high school teachers suggested, would you mind if I brought a state therapist in and worked with you on your speech. I said, I'm going to be in the woods. I did a hoot, owls, and squirrels could care less what I sound like. And uh, so I did agree. And that God was in that four years later and, and sovereignly moved in that opportunity. But 
Man, the pastor said, yes, sir, Brother Les is coming. Okay, folks, guess what the mark of the beast is? Six, six, six. Teens would buy the tapes to take them to their friends. You would have heard this cat who was at our church. And, uh, and so, but the, you talk about when I surrendered, I, I surrendered to the fact that, God, I'm available. But I don't know until you make the step of faith and you go step by step by step. And God gives the grace. Secondly, I can do, that's a fact, all things. That is a fullness of our confidence. I want you to think right now, what all thing have you faced this year? What all thing are you facing now? Write it down. For you, it's one thing. For me, it would be something else. For this church, it would be something else. What all thing do you have that you're facing? I can do all things. And by the way, it's in spite of the paradoxes of Christianity. Just write down 2 Corinthians chapter 6. What a blessing to study the paradoxes in that chapter. This afternoon, if you have a little bit extra time, just read through those paradoxes. The description of a Christian, what he goes through in life. And in spite of all the pressures, if you want to know what pressure to, Paul was talking about, 2 Corinthians chapter 12. When you read everything that he went through, the beatings and the shipwrecks, and then he said, and beside that, the care of what? All the churches. You know what was heaviest on the heart of Paul? Not the fact that he had been shipwrecked, not that he had been beaten. His body must have looked terrible from those whips. And yet that wasn't what, you know what was really burdening his heart? The care of all the churches. People who come to know Christ and a church is planted and people are in that church attempting to grow and Paul ached in his heart that these people would know the word and love the Lord and be committed to that which was right. And uh, when you look at the all thing, for us, it would be a pretty minor thing when you compare the paradoxes and the pressures that Paul goes through in that time. And it's very humbling to stop to think, man, we... If we went through one thing that Paul went through, we'd spend the rest of our, we'd have a ministry the rest of our life going to churches telling about it. But Paul lived in that way uh, constantly. And is it a physical issue? Uh, is it a financial issue? Is it a major decision that you have to make? Uh, what is it? And you see that work of God. So think right now, what all thing is in my life right now that, that really is heavy on my heart? And I'm not sure that I can do that. I'm not sure that I can get through that. I mentioned on the men's retreat, uh, I'm getting a, book, a booklet written on what, what do you do when normal is gone? Telephone rings and normal is no more. It's not coming back. How do we act and how do we react in that, in that kind of a context? I can do. I was in Micronesian Islands preaching in Palau 
lived with the missionary there and his family. I, I stayed in that little room and, and um, you'd go out of their living room and then you'd walk right into the church. They built everything out of mahogany. They had a woodmiser ensemble and they'd get these mahogany trees and they'd cut wood and they had the beams and the, everything was mahogany. And uh, I'd sing with the pastor's daughter and her guitar. And, and so, so we had just, a, and people would come early to that service just to be there, just to sing. But I noticed a man in his wheelchair, he was twisted. He was back like this. He was stretched out like that and, uh, and like that. And I noticed he was always there. So I asked the pastor, I said, what is, tell me about this guy. He said, well, he was a, he was a tree guy. He worked for the island. He worked for the, the uh, state of Palau. And uh, they were cutting trees. A co-worker came to work drunk and, and fell a tree on him. He, said, he was paralyzed. Got to lead him to Christ. And he said, you know, he hasn't missed. And I'm there. They have to struggle him out of the van and so on. I went to him. I said, sir, I, I just want you to know what a blessing you are to me. I said, you're here. People make all kinds of excuses to not be in church. And he said, a crippled body doesn't mean a crippled mind and a crippled heart. And I said, I will use that statement. Because I'm going to fly back to the United States. And people would think of any reason to not be in God's house. Not struggling, not leaning back in a chair, not, no, able to walk. God-given breath, God-given eyes, God-given abundance, God-given vehicles. And I... The coach fits me so perfectly. Don't have to get out of my pajamas because I'm going to Walmart next. And uh, you know what I mean? Well, you see some doozy pajamas in Walmart. <laughs> what have we become? What have we become? Even in all things, get to church. I mean, that's pretty simple, isn't it? Get to church. Fullness, all things. Thirdly, what's the next phrase? I can do, that's a fact. All things, that's a fullness. You pick your fullness. The third thing, in Christ, that's the focus of our confidence. There's the key. That relationship that we have in Christ when you, you look back and the Saul of Tarsus, he's, he was so angry. In fact, the Greek actually implies that after he ordered the stoning of Stephen or he was in charge of the stoning, the first martyr of the Christian church. And I think he saw the glow of God on Stephen's face as he looked up and saw the Son of Man standing at the right hand of the Father. And I think Paul probably heard the whisper they don't know what they're doing. Father, forgive them. 
Paul went into such a rage, he went to the authorities at the church there in Jerusalem, all those religious phonies, he gets more papers to press north to Damascus to persecute and imprison and beat the Christians that are there, these followers of the way. And on the way to Damascus, what happens? His life is intersected by Jesus Christ. Two key questions he asks. Who are you, Lord? That's number one question I need to ask in life. Who is the Lord? Then what do you want me to do? Who is the Lord? That's the person of Christ. What do you want me to do? That's the purpose that he has for me. I tell teenagers, you answer two key questions and your life will be directed rightly. Who is Jesus Christ and who, what does he want me to do? And, and, and he, God says, Paul, it's hard for you to kick against these ox codes. And then Paul, blinded, was taken to this home. And you think of the faith of those people. In that they knew why Saul of Tarsus was pushing north. Word had gone ahead, I'm positive. He's coming to town. Beating, imprisoning. Here was Stephen just murdered, martyred. And he's coming here. And God tells. And then I get, bring Paul to your house. See, yeah, you know what he did? That was a step of faith. He thought, you know what? I'm probably done. I'm going first. But he made that step of obedience. And from that time onward, the Apostle Paul made his entire life focus the person of Christ. How do we grow in Christ? You say, well, I, yeah, I can do this, this activity. Well, I can handle something. But how do we relate to the person of Christ? How do you spend your, your first waking hour of the day? Now, I mean, when you first, when you first become aware of a day, there is a time period there that I've shared, Charlene and I always thought we were staying at a family in Pennsylvania in their basement. And uh, they said, what do you normally do for breakfast? I said, well, Charlene and I start out with a stare cup of coffee. And, um, and they didn't know, they thought because there were stairs going down, they thought that we got coffee and sat on the stairs. I said, no, S-T-A-R-E, not S-T-A-I-R. I said, I said we get up and of course up north, then we, we, I still heat with outdoor wood boiler, 190-gallon wood boiler. And, and 90 miles north of Green Bay, the air, air gets a nip in it once in a while. And uh, so I'd get up about 5.30 and I'd go load that stove. And, and, but before I would do that, I'd put the pot on. Get the stove loaded, close that big door, and then when it's 20 below, 15 below, sometimes you could feel like you can reach up and touch the stars. It seemed like they're just right there. And, and I throw my arms in the air. What an awesome God. What an, and the fact who we call him Father, but the one who said, Father, forgive them, it is finished. Well, the one who spoke and all that came, and he's our Savior. And we can talk to the Father through Jesus Christ. What an awesome God. Then I get back in the house, and the light is on on the pot. There's hope. Yes. <laughs> there is hope. Yes. 
And uh, so we get a cup. I fix Charlene a cup. And we call it our stare cup. I said, honey, no praying, no talking, no communication. You sit and stare 15 minutes. Stare and sip. What are you doing during those 15 minutes? Deciding, should I go into the day or just give it up? Well, normally you'd say, yeah, okay. Then, I, in fact, I had two cups this morning. Early this morning, got one made, took my little wheelie in there, and I went and made a cup, and then went back. When you started stirring, I, I got another cup. And so, as you can tell, I'm in fairly decent condition right now. I can see you and everything. Otherwise, you see men as trees when you first get out of bed in the morning. But then what do we do? When Charlene and I pray together in the mornings, we acknowledge, first of all, we're dead people on furlough. Secondly, we say, God, let us live this 24 hours in one-hour blocks for your glory and for others' good with Bema accountability in mind. We will give an account at the Bema for this day. So we make that transfer and... Then we get into our, our study. What is your devotional time? Where is your prayer time? Where is your time of meditation? Where is it when you are putting your focus on the person of Jesus Christ and getting to know him more intimately? We hired a staff several years ago, a very high level, and he came uh, and... Uh, and he saw the busyness when you have 100 staff. And at that time, I think we had 800 on-campus students at the college. And you have sending pastors, you have sending parents, you have sending grandparents. And it seemed like you'll never make everybody happy. So there's always pressure and there's always this and airline schedules being booked and so on. So this guy came to me, this new staff came. He said, Les, how do you stay encouraged? And I said, I have three blinders that I've, I've tried to have in life, in ministry. As blinder number one, keep my passion for Christ growing. And that takes time in the word. That takes time in communication with him. That takes time feeding your soul with that which he has given to us to feed our souls. I believe every Christian ought to be able to read through the scriptures one time a year minimally. That's only 20-minute commitment daily. And then go into deeper studies of book studies and so on. You could take just one of your 24 hours and focus that on the Word and, and prayer time. But how many people do that? I mean, the one who died on the cross, the one who gave himself forth, the one who shed his blood, the one who bore the wrath for my sin that I would not ever know the wrath of God. How can we just totally ignore him? And as you look at that, I said, I, I try to keep my passion for Christ growing. And what everything he wants me to know is in this word. I'm not listening for extra messages. It's all here. And then I said, secondly, keep your eye on your mission. When our boys played hockey and I was driving one of them to a hockey game and he said, Dad, what do you do? And, and those of you who have played hockey or know or watch hockey, you know there's some melees that go on sometimes 
that uh, but in front of the net and one playing center where you're in the middle of the net and sometimes guys get their stick and come up underneath to try to catch you under here somewhere so the ref can't see that and but they're hacking they'll hack at your calf muscle or, and and you see all this going on and I said, he said what do you do when you uh, when you're getting hammered ref doesn't see it I said uh, how do you win games he said, teamwork. I said, no, we'll talk about the pious stuff later. How does the score get 1-0? He said, the puck goes in the net. I said, exactly. Put the puck in the net and let the heathen rage. If you're there to react to somebody who is acting against you, you're going to end up in a sin bin, and then it's five on four. Your team loses. And because I cannot spend my life reacting to pokes. Because if I spend my life reacting to pokes, the goal will never be scored. If I'm a basketball player, which I have a black belt in basketball, because I played it like I played hockey. <laughs> so I'm dribbling. What's my goal? Put the thing. What if somebody hollers from the stand? If you had a brain, you'd play with it. What? Throw the ball, go, and go up there and clock the guy feel great. I don't have to play basketball anymore. Why I'm on a court? Get the ball in the hoop. Why are we as believers in this world to give the gospel and you're going to get poked? Any of you have ever experienced any pastoral type ministry? You have to understand there's at least one person in every church, large or small, whose sole calling is to keep that pastor humble. First one at the plane when he candidates, last one at the train when he gets kicked out. I told one pastor, I said, you know, one, one great thing about getting kicked out of a church, you don't have to pray about leaving. I said, that's the way to go for people who hate to make decisions. <laughs> but if you spend your time reacting, you're going to lose your whole focus. And then... Thirdly, keep all of your relationships right as much as is humanly possible. Paul says in Romans 12, as much as lies within you, live peaceably with all. But there are some who just cannot. I mean, you're not going to get a relationship right because you made your attempts, you made, but you cannot let that be your distractor. So keep these blinders on. And I said, you just keep focused and get up every day. It's a new day. You've been furloughed by God. You go into that day. And, but yet, how does 1 Corinthians chapter 1 end? For he is our wisdom. He is our righteousness. He is our sanctification. He is our redemption. Romans chapter, chapter uh, 13. And in fact, I like that. I call it the, the mini verse of the Bible. In Romans eleven thirty six. I call it the mini Bible. Of him, through him, to him are all things, to whom be glory both now and forever. Out of him is creation, through him is redemption, unto him is consummation. Romans eleven thirty six. 36. That's the mini Bible. Tell the story in a nutshell. But it's all centered in the person of Jesus Christ. Why? That no flesh should glory in his presence. So we have a, a, a time of 
uh, focusing and a time of growing uh, in him. How intimately do we know do we know him? When dorm students would come in as freshmen, the, the first thing I had to do, and I had a burden that each uh, incoming freshman would make a biography, their own personal biography of, of their God. A pastor dropped a, uh, either son or daughter off. We were walking to the dining hall. He said, Les, what do you see as the greatest need for kids coming out of our churches and homes coming into Bible college, what do you see as their greatest need? I said, the greatest need is that they know God. Not know about him. They all come knowing about him. But when you see how lives are lived and decisions that are made, you realize real quickly, they don't know him. They know about him, but they don't know him. And I said, so when you, when you come as a freshman, we're going to give you passages to read. And I want you to dig out of those passages from 7 to 7.25 in the morning. Dig out of those passages all of the descriptions of your God. Hundreds and hundreds of descriptions of their God. And I said, make a journal and then make that the first part of your prayer time. Because adoration is the first part of prayer. Then agreement is the next part of prayer. And then asking is the, is the third part of prayer. But it starts with adoration. Our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. So you start with the praise of he is my God, he is my rock, he is my defense. And that you get all of these descriptions of God. And then you begin to realize that as you grow in that, you're getting a better knowledge of who he is. And Paul spent the rest of his days focusing on the person of Christ. That's why from prison he could write a letter of rejoicing because his joy was in that relationship. How serious are we about him? A lot of these young people, they would kind of gripe and complain because they thought, I'll get to college as an adult and I'd be able to say what time I get up. If chapel's at 10, I'm gonna, I'll set my alarm for, for 9.40. Then I'll have classes only after chapel. I said, nine, 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 my Lord. You're going to learn what it is to get out of bed. Get out of bed. We don't need lazy bums. And my dad, I was raised in an unsaved home. My dad was copper mining for over 40 years, underground copper mining. I was the last of nine kids, not spoiled. And dad would pound his fists. There would be no lazy bums raised in this house. And boy, he made sure that there were no lazy bums. I'd like to see him counsel some of this generation today. My brother Ron, we were laughing one time. He said, Boy, he said, if dad were alive today, he would have been in prison a long time ago. <laughs> but I'll tell you what, we learned a work ethic. And as you go along the line, what happened to Demas? Now, Paul is writing his last letter. He knows his head is going to be severed from his body within hours, probably. What does he say in that last letter? Chapter 4, he gives the instruction, preach the word, be instant in season, out of season, and so on. Then, then 
right in the midst of this discussion, Paul says, and Demas has forsaken me. You think Paul was saying that for himself? Paul knew he was going to be with the Lord shortly. He wasn't saying that for him. He said, he's a bummer and leaves me hanging. No. You know what Paul was grieving over? Grieving over the fact that Demas was going to lose it all except his salvation. It didn't say Demas hath forsaken me, ran off with the organist in Philippi. Demas hath forsaken me having loved this present world. He fell in love with the system of the world. Drive across the United States today. Go out to the beach on Sunday mornings. How much God consciousness is there? None. God is no longer even in their thinking. He's no longer even a part of their value system at all. And when you see how Paul lived here grievingly, he says, Demons have But then he said, I have fought a good fight, I have finished my course. I have kept the faith. All perfect tenses. A dot and a continuous line. I have been fighting. I have been finishing. I have been keeping. Paul never said I attained. Paul never said I got perfect. That's not what he was thinking. Paul says I showed up every day for work. Never claimed perfection. But yet he said I have been fighting. I have been finished. Henceforth what? There is laid up for me a crown of righteousness. What was Paul looking for? What's coming? What was coming? And then last part of that phrase. What is the last phrase there? Someone read it. Which? Strengtheneth me. That's the force of our confidence. Paul says, I can do. Yes. But Paul is ending this little verse with the fact that no, it is through his strength that I am strengthened. Let's go to 2 Corinthians 12 and we'll be done. 2 Corinthians chapter 12. And I think in this passage, Paul probably reveals more of his heart, more of what has driven him, more of what has motivated him than in any other part. We, we know a little bit more of Paul's inner feeling than in any other passage. And then 2 Corinthians chapter 11 and... Uh, Verse 7, I'll start there. And I, unless I should be exalted above measure to the abundance of the revelations, there was given to me a thorn in the flesh, the messenger of Satan to buffet me, lest I should be exalted above measure. So Paul, Paul said, I've, I've had these experiences. I was carried into the third heaven, whether in the body, out of the body, I don't know. But he said, I can't talk about that. But he said, unless I should be exalted above measure, God gave me a thorn in the flesh. And I think that thorn was twofold, in my opinion. I think, one, there was a physical problem, and I also think there was a person problem. I think because it was called the messenger of Satan. And I think Paul might have mentioned the, the likes of uh, those who had gone against him in like, But whatever it is, I think he had two things in mind 
And he said, I went to God. How many times did Paul go to God ask for that thorn to be removed? Three times. Do you think he just added that to his breakfast uh, prayer? I personally think that Paul probably went aside for three times for a period of time with prayer and perhaps fasting. Convinced of what? What was Paul convinced of why he was begging God for that? What? Yeah, I, I think it would basically I could I could be so much more effective and get so much more done if I didn't have this thorn in the flesh. What did God know? If he didn't have it, he would go back to the old Saul of Tarsus mentality. You know why? Because we still had that old man fighting for preeminence. And so what did he say? For this thing I besought the Lord thrice that it might depart from me. And he said unto me, my grace, three words I want to end with. The first word is grace. My grace is sufficient for thee, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. And the Greek structure here, basically when you look at the overall context of this, what's going on, it's like, as I said before, Paul, so I say again, my grace is sufficient. And so when you look at 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verse 10, Paul says, for by the grace of God, I am what I am. And that grace that was bestowed upon me was not bestowed in vain. And then he makes a parenthetical statement here. I labored more abundantly than you all. Yet not I, but what? The grace of God that was with me. Paul was magnifying the grace of God. We're saved by grace. We're drawn to him by grace. We are redeemed by grace. We are living by grace. We'll be taken into his presence by grace because it is by God's amazing grace. Grace. You look at 1 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 12. What did Paul say? I thank our Lord Jesus Christ who hath enabled me, counting me faithful, putting me into the ministry. Enabling grace, entrusting grace, employing grace. Paul says I have been enabled by him. I have been entrusted to ministry by him and I have been carried into his presence as we look at this. So entrusting, enabling, and employing grace, I am serving him by grace. So Paul magnified the grace of God. And God says, Paul, I'm not going to let that go. Paul, you're not going to get rid of that thorn. My grace is sufficient for you. You know, isn't it a great to realize God's the one who does the enabling, which strengtheneth me. And as my weakness grows, his strength grows because we are magnifying. The second word is glory. And we find my grace is sufficient. My strength is made perfect in weakness. Most gladly will I rather glory in my infirmity of he gloried, I think, two things. He gloried in infirmity and he gloried in ignominy. I believe the greatest ministry verse in all of the Bible is verse 15 of this chapter. And I will very gladly spend and be spent for you knowing the more I love you, the less I be loved. That's not human. That's agape, God-empowered love. Uh, we cannot do that in the flesh. 
And when you look, he said, I will very, very gladly spend. I'll give you my things and be spent. I'll give you myself knowing the more I do this, the less you're going to love me. And Paul says, I'll very gladly do that. That is not human. That's divine. Then the last word is goal. And there's a hint of clause here. In order that, what? The power of Christ may rest upon me. That's a hint of clause. In order that. So what was Paul's goal? Yeah, God, I'll accept this. I will accept this. That's from you. Why? Because... If this is how your power is going to be best manifested, I will very, very willingly accept in order that the power of Christ may rest on me. The force of our confidence. Let's say Philippians 4.13. I can do all things through Christ which strengtheneth me. And boy, it's a packed, packed little verse, but boy, it's so packed with so much truth. And boy, if we can just learn how to function in this way, just keep on plowing. Okay, I think uh, the floor is going to drop out under me shortly here, so at least there's no lift like some churches have. So uh, thank you. I really appreciate being here.